The title of today's message is, Don't Be a Dimwit. Don't be a dimwit. And I hope you'll see it as we go through that and why God's Word uh, exhorts us not to be a dimwit. All right, as we go through this passage here, you'll see that Proverbs defines a dimwit as someone who lacks sense. No, that word is not there. Uh, You won't find it as the Hebrew transliteration or anything like that, but it's the word we'll use here today, right? It's a person who lacks sense, who lacks wisdom. More than that, it's, it's a person who's not made a commitment to the way of wisdom, Right, this is not uh, the simple person who can still be influenced in a certain way towards the path of wisdom. No, this is a person who says, I'm not committed to wisdom, and now follows after their own way, the way of folly, and they lack sense. So we're going to take this passage in four chunks, uh, but we're going to spend the bulk of the time in the second portion of it today. So I'm going to invite you, let's turn to the seventh chapter of Proverbs. We're going to read... The first five verses. Hear the words of the living God. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words. These are the words of the Lord. Now, if you're keeping count, this is the fourth lesson from the father Solomon to his, to his young son warning him about the forbidden woman. And you're like, my goodness, we're going to hit this again? Yes, we are. Right? The repetition there is important because of whom this is addressed to, the primary audience. But the reality is we need to hear this message over and over again. There's lots of warnings about her because of the temptation to sexual sin for this young man. That temptation is going to be strong. And Solomon wants to safeguard his son against the kind of temptation he's going to face from the enticement of this particular woman. Now, this particular lesson focuses on exposing her seductive tactics. The tactics that this adulteress employs to lure him in, ensnare him, that will ultimately lead to his death. And the way Solomon is going to do this is by way of narration. We're going to find here a poetic drama that unfolds in the story of this particular seduction Uh, of this type of person that Bruce Waltke calls in his commentary, the gullible dimwit, right? And this gullible dimwit faces danger from the forbidden woman. Now think about what Solomon is doing here through these particular lessons, right? We as good parents warn our children of the dangers they face, right? They're generally safe in our home unless... You know, you let them run wild, right? But, but generally, they're safe. We warn them of what's going to happen once they cross the threshold of the doors of our home and go out into the world. Don't we do that as parents? Every time Arielle goes out, that's exactly what I do. I give her the same speech, the same spiel. She knows it, you know, and she can repeat it, right? Don't be looking down. Look up. Look people in the eyes, right? Turn around. Situational awareness. Head on a swivel, right? And she laughs when I start telling her that, but she can repeat it. She knows the drill, right? A good parent warns their children of danger out there. And this is what Solomon uh, is doing with this lesson. Now, as, 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 as of all the lessons we've looked at, there's kind of a familiar structure that un, unfolds, and they generally start the same way, right? With the address, Solomon to his son, this young man, who's most likely married at this, at this stage of this particular lesson. And, and like a good godly parent, he's going to exhort him to keep God's word, to treasure God's word in his heart, to keep his commandments, to keep the, the, the spiritual inheritance that's been passed down to him, to hold fast to it and, and hold on to it and to embrace it. In verse 2, he says, keep my commandments and live. Again, what is it pointing out to us? That there is a way of wisdom that leads to life. And if you abandon wisdom, 
There is no life, right? It's death. Keep the commandments and live. These commandments, these teachings, this wisdom serves as a guardrail for this young man's life. And the guardrails are not there to take freedom away from him. The guardrails are there to preserve freedom and to preserve his life. Aren't you glad that there are guardrails? Like if you're going down a dangerous mountain path, right? And there's a curve you're coming up to and you're going real fast. Imagine if there was no guardrail. Okay? This is what's in view here. And once again, parents, what do we see in these exhortations? Our responsibility. Our primary responsibility to be the ones who nurture our children in the faith, pass on our faith to our children through instruction, through teaching, through the word of God, so that they can know it and live it and understand it, and there is life. Now Solomon highlights the preciousness of his teaching here when he commands his son to keep them, keep his teaching as the apple of your eye, the apple of his eye. Now, we use that term, right? We, we've used that expression when we refer to someone that we love and care for, someone who is precious, extremely precious to us. That's not everybody, is it? That's is the apple of my eye, like no other woman is. Arielle is the apple of my eye. She is my precious daughter. Right? Someone extremely precious to you, we use that term. Now, interestingly, that word, uh, at that phrase, apple of of your eye is not really the phrase in the original language of Hebrew here, but it's an expression that in English we've, we've used, right? And Tyndale is the one who, who put that in the English translation first, and, and we have it now. But the, the, the phrase in Hebrew actually is translated as pupil, the pupil of the eye. Literally, it means the little man reflected in the eye. You know, like the little man? Well, think about it, right? When you're looking at someone, right? And you're looking into their eyes, what's reflected back? Your own image, yourself, but really, really tiny, right? In the pupil of the eye, you get to see it there. The point here uh, of this is that, 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 that your image is the one that they're focusing on. Your image is the one that is central in the eyes of that person at that particular moment. And that's what God's word is, and God's teachings have to be uh, for us, the apple of our eye. A treasure of inestimable and incomparable worth. Something so exceedingly precious that it always must be kept before us. This is what Solomon is conveying to his son. Now he underscores that again by commands that we've looked at already and, and, and follow Deuteronomy chapter 6. He commands, commands him to, to bind these teachings to his fingers, on his fingers. The closest thing we could think about here is doesn't mean write little scrolls and put them on your finger but but think about images and symbols that we use you wear a wedding band when you're married a wedding band is a symbol of some the symbol of your covenant uh, of marriage it's a reminder of a special relationship you share with a person your spouse that you do not share with anyone else it's the person that you most treasure and if you're binding God's word to your finger, it's something that's always before you that when you see it and you look at it, you know it's something you treasure and you're reminded of it continually. But most importantly, that word needs to be written on the tablet of your heart. And that's what Solomon reminds him of again. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Everything comes back to the heart, doesn't it? Everything starts with the heart and God's word must be hidden in the heart. God's word must be internalized and memorized, embedded deep within. How important that is. There is one exhortation I can remind you every week is to hide God's word in your heart, to put it in your heart. We devote so much time and energy with the intake of everything this world has to offer and throws at us. But we spend precious little time in God's word and putting it into our heart. So it's not a wonder when the outflow of our life is not godliness and holiness and purity and things that honor the Lord. It's not a surprise when with our mouth we're foul and vulgar and use profanity and coarse joking. Why? God's word's not in our heart. It's inside of your heart comes out. We are inside out people, aren't we? Not outside in, inside out. But what's in there is from the intake, then our mouth speaks, right? Right? Then our hands and our feet act. 
get God's word into your heart, right? We need that. So the point is here, don't leave home without God's word in your heart. You don't leave home without your keys. You don't leave home without your smartphone. You die without your smartphone, right? That's, that's what it seems like sometimes. I've turned around many a time. Oops, forgot that. Don't leave home without God's word. Get it into your heart. It's life. Solomon uses this next uh, a personal metaphor of marriage for his teaching. So to what, in essence, what he's telling his son, in order to avoid the temptation to sexual sin, in order to stay faithful to the Lord, in order to stay faithful to your wife, marry wisdom. She is the worthiest object of your love and devotion. That's what he says in verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend. Now, he's not advocating for you to marry your sister. Okay? That's weird. It's wrong. All right? That's not what he's asking. But sister at that time was a term of endearment for one's beloved. And we find that in one of Solomon's other writings in Song of Solomon 4, 9, and 10. Listen to this. You, now he's speaking not to his biological sister. He's talking to his beloved, his bride. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Think of those terms that are being used right now for uh, 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 the groom who is just captivated by his beautiful bride. And Solomon is saying that same commitment that a husband is to have with his bride, the same look of, of endearment and preciousness is the kind of commitment the son needs to have when it comes to wisdom. He must have an intimate and personal relationship with wisdom so that he'll be protected from the dangerous and seductive enticements of this unchaste woman. Now, in verse 5, he says to keep you. Now, here's the purpose of all of that. Why keep all of these things? Why keep the word, keep his teachings? To keep you from the forbidden woman, the adulteress with her smooth words. Now, we've looked at this woman already, right? Smooth words, honey lips, seductive language, sensual language to seduce and entice. The purpose of all this keeping is to be kept from the smooth talk of the adulterous woman. The point is, if you keep God's word, God's word will keep you from her. If you keep to the way of wisdom, wisdom will keep you from the way of the adulteress. And as a reminder, this lesson, while it's meant to preserve the son from straying off the path of wisdom and straying onto the path of the adulteress. It's a r- real temptation. It's a real deal, right? This enticement uh, to commit adultery, to sexual sin with this woman. This, this forbidden woman is also a placeholder for all manner of sin and temptation. So don't just look at that and go, well, that has to do with adultery only. Well, ultimately, all sin is adultery because it's unfaithfulness to God. That's what idolatry is. That's why idolatry is likened to adultery in the scripture over and over again. It is unfaithfulness to the Lord. So this forbidden woman is the incarnation of every rival word to the father's teaching. The father has a word. All of this other stuff are rival words competing for the son's attention. Now this here... uh, we can see then that everything uh, that is contrary to God's word, everything that stands against wisdom, everything that, uh, that uh, violates the word of God, we can classify as the forbidden woman. That could be sexual temptation. Uh, that could be every manner of sin or sinful lifestyle. It even extends to demonic ideologies, demonic worldviews. Again, anything contrary to wisdom. And this is why this lesson is so applicable for each of us. Because it contains the blueprint of temptation. When you see the language employed in these lessons, it's teaching us of how temptation comes. How temptation seduces us and entices us and lures us away from wisdom. Why? So we don't fall into it. So we're not a dimwit, right, going after it as as someone who lacks sense. We are served well by remembering these lessons. But ultimately... The intimacy we need is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
with wisdom from God and the wisdom of God. So we cannot hope to walk in wisdom apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. We cannot do it. We cannot know wisdom apart from Christ. Now let's look at this next passage here. uh, Verses 6 to 20, right? This is a lengthier section here. But it's an exhortation to not be deceived like the dimwit. Let's continue in the word of the Lord. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice. And I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him at full moon. He will come home. Whew, there's a lot there. It's a crazy woman. And that's a dumb young man too as well, right? What's going on here? Well, with this transition, transitional phrase, of it, for, he says, for. This is why this lesson is so critical and important, why you need to keep the word and be kept from the adulterous woman. Because now Solomon's going to tell his story from, from his vantage point. He, he's looking out from his house as an observer. He's looking out his window into the world and telling us what he sees. Where is the father? He's at home. That home is, the, is a metaphor for the house of wisdom. Solomon's perch, his vantage point, is wisdom. It's wisdom. And he's observing and seeing the world as it truly is. And this is so important. Because outside of the house of wisdom is the world. And, and the world is a distortion of wisdom. It's, it's lies. It's half-truths. It's, it's some aberration of wisdom. But it's not truth. It's not the wisdom that the father is conveying to his son, and he wants him to see that. Let me date myself with an old, test, old reference here, you know, back a couple decades here to the movie The Matrix. There's a scene uh, there that's, that's one of the most poignant scenes, one of the most telling and important scenes there, where Morpheus, one of the title characters there, is explaining to Neo what The Matrix is. Neo wants to know what this is. He knows there's something out there. Now, if you haven't seen it, it's okay. The Matrix is a computer simulation that's meant to enslave the human race from them knowing that they're actually batteries, okay? They're energy source. They're fuel. So this thing tricks them into thinking they're, they're in the world as it was, going about their day-to-day lives, okay? So he's asking him, what is the Matrix? He wants to know what the Matrix is. And Morpheus tells him, the Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes, this purpose, to blind you from the truth. Neo says, what is the truth? And the truth, Morpheus says to him, is that you are a slave. You're a slave. Neo, like everyone else, you were born into bondage, into a prison that you cannot taste or see or touch, a prison for your mind. That is the condition of fallen humanity, isn't it? They don't know it. They're going about their life. They think they're walking in wisdom. They think they have a version of wisdom or a portion of the truth. And they're very vocal and want to express it and let everyone else know what it is. And they want everyone else to come alongside of them and and, and and go off into folly and, and their kind of wisdom. But they're blind. They're in bondage. That's our condition apart from Jesus Christ. We cannot know wisdom. We cannot know spiritual truth in our natural state of being born into sin, which is why we must be born again. 
We need to have the blinders taken off, right? To be able to see the spiritual reality, wisdom from God's vantage point, from his word and how he's revealed it to us. That wisdom is Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I'm seeing the world. I'm looking out my window, and here's what I observe. And this is what wisdom affords us, brothers and sisters, which is why we need it. Why we need a biblical worldview. Why we need to put on the lenses of God's word to be able to see the world, evaluate the world, discern what's going on in the world, to know what's truth and what's error. It gives us understanding. It gives us insight. The Father is operating here from that lens, from a different world and life view than those he is observing. And so it's important that you see the contrast drawn here from the Father's house. It's the house of wisdom, now to the street. Now, looking out in the streets, and we've already seen streets in the Scripture here is a metaphor for everything that's going on in the world, right? The evil, the wickedness, the debauchery, all that is happening out there apart from wisdom. It's the way of folly. When we internalize God's word, it shapes our life. It shapes our heart. Because God's word is truth. Do you believe that? God's word is truth, brothers and sisters. If I ask you to define truth, I might get a few different answers, right? But there's a standard definition that I always love. Truth is what conforms to reality. If it doesn't conform to reality, it's not truth. And that reality is not something subjective, it is something objective, right? Because it's already been defined. We know God is truth. So whatever God speaks is truth, comes from truth. That's reality. Anything apart from that, everything outside of that, everything contrary to that cannot be truth. This is why we need God's word. This is why our world is fumbling all over itself, going through life, trying to define truth as something subjective. Well, it can't be subjective. This whole notion that you have your truth and I have my truth is stupidity at a time. That's dim-wittedness, right, to to the nth degree. There's one truth, one standard of truth, one objective truth, not one you can make up for yourselves. You need to understand also that everything in the world, every declaration the world makes is a truth claim. And none of those truth claims are neutral. None of those things can be placed on par with God's revelation of himself and what the truth is. Therefore, we need to be able to discern. Every truth claim that contradicts, opposes, or diminishes The truth, capital T truth, is a lie and is a declaration of war against the Creator. It's Romans chapter 1. Isn't that what it shows us? People suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They hold the truth down. They keep it from bubbling up so that they can know and see. Why? Because of their idolatry, because of their sinfulness, their selfishness, their wickedness, their depravity, the blindness they're in. They can't see the truth. They know the truth. Scripture tells us that. They know there's a God. They know that, but they suppress that truth. So man is without excuse. So nothing's neutral. Don't act like what's out here in the world is neutral. The music you listen to is not neutral. The movies you watch are not neutral. The books you read are not neutral. Nothing is neutral. The stuff babbled out by politicians is not neutral. So stop looking at that stuff that way. It means something. It matters. And it's either of the truth or it's not of the truth. And you need to be able to discern that and not just take everything into your heart and your life and think it's all okay. It may not be. And it could be having devastating effects. Only God's word is truth. Look at it. If you're paying attention, right? If you have a biblical worldview, what is happening in our world right now? This redefinition of terms. Why? Because they've got to twist terms to not try to shoehorn their practices or their beliefs and to reshape a word that meant something at one time to mean something else right now. That's what sin does. Sin distorts the good things of God, the truth of God, the word of God, the values that are uh, enshrined and espoused in the scriptures here for wickedness, for evil, for perversion. 
So let's go back to our story here. Father's looking out his window. You know, typically, you know, we might think of this. He's, he's the king, right? So it's probably not a, a you know, a single-story apartment on the first floor. He's in the palace, right? He's looking down, right, and observing what's going on out there, the world. And here's what he sees. He sees a young man lacking sense. He's looking out at the youths. Remember, this is this Proverbs is meant not just for the son of the king here, who was going to uh, who was royalty and one day might be king, but also to all of the youth of Israel. So he's looking, he's seeing all the young people, and he goes, "I spotted one, our gullible dimwit." Here he is, right? Here's the one not committed to wisdom, and he's not committed to wisdom because he really cannot read the situation rightly that he finds himself in or that he's gotten himself into. So, so this guy's not the brightest bulb in the pack. Not the sharpest tool in the shed, all right? And he's going to be easy prey for this woman here. Now, throughout this narrative, you're going to see application for how to avoid temptation, right? And, and, and Solomon writes this so we can put ourselves, right? Imagine what he is seeing, what he is expressing to his son. Goes on to say, passing along, this is the dimwit, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. This dimwit is demonstrating complete lack of sense. Certainly doesn't have common sense, which is not so common, is it, right? He's unaware of the danger that he's in of making his way to her house, moving closer to her through ever-increasing darkness, darkening streets. He lacks the sense to know that he should not put himself in harm's way by straying onto her path. Now, we've looked at, one of the things we've looked at here in the past is how wisdom enables us to evaluate the outcome of our actions. In other words, we ought to... to Count the consequences, evaluate, if I take this course of action, if I follow this path of temptation, what is the outcome? What's on the other side of this? What is at the end of it? Well, this guy's not doing that at all. This global individual does not have a clue of what's in store for him. We can't afford to not have a clue, brothers and sisters. We cannot treat sin so casually, so flippantly. We can't play around with temptation. We can't think we can flirt with temptation and think we'll remain unscathed. It's not the way it works. And it comes to worldviews, again, we cannot act like everything out there is equal and has a place or a seat at the table with the wisdom from God. It doesn't have the same worth or value. This dimwit is taking a stroll that is a descent into ever-increasing darkness. Notice he starts in the daylight. And what? It's getting progressively dark as he moves towards her house. That's not intentional. I mean, we're, we're meant to see that where he's going is not of the light, which would be called wisdom, but he's moving to darkness. Her house is a house of darkness and sin and depravity. It's getting darker. Darkness also will provide a cover for what he's doing. Right? It's in the dark. No one can see him. He can, he can move towards her house, and maybe people who know him won't see where he's going. Right? We're more susceptible to temptations allure when we are, are isolated, when we operate in the dark, where we think no one will see us. I think two of the things we must be cautious of continually, brothers and sisters, when it comes to temptation is isolation and idleness. Either one of those two things can really sidetrack you from the way of wisdom. Especially when you isolate yourself from other believers. When you isolate yourself from the brothers and sisters who who you should be fellowshipping with and encouraging you. When you don't do that, you're more susceptible to temptation. And you know this exhortation in Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. This exhortation to fellowship and meeting and gathering together. Let us, not, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need one another. If you're struggling with temptation, 
Check yourself. Diagnose. What is your relationship with believers? Are you gathering with frequency with believers? Are you in fellowship with other believers? And if we are, we need to be encouraging one another to hold fast, to hold the line, to watch out for temptation. And he says here, all the more, what? As you see the day drawing near. What's the day? The return of the Lord. We, we should be encouraging one another. Stay holy. Stay pure. Don't give in to temptation. Be in God's word. Hide it in your heart. It's encouragement to, towards one another. We need one another. Also, idleness. When you're not busy. When you have too much time on your hands, it is a whole lot easier to entertain temptation, isn't it? This young man should have been hard at work. I don't know what day of the week this was. He probably should have been working. He probably should have been working hard. Right? You work hard, you go to sleep exhausted, you have little time to entertain sin. Right? Idleness. We talked about the lazy before, right? The sluggard. They come to poverty. Lots of warnings for the idle person in Proverbs. And if you find yourself continually entertaining temptation or succumbing to temptation over and over again, it's likely you don't have enough to do. You're not busy. You're shirking off probably some responsibilities you have in order to entertain your sin. So if we're working hard and going to bed tired, that's kind of one of the last things on our minds. I want you to really think about that in your own life. Verse 10 now, we're introduced to the black widow, right? The, this, she's going to ensnare this gullible dimwit and take him to an early death. Look at verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him. Like this is a d- dramatic entry to the stage of the forbidden woman, right? And it's vivid language that's going to be used now to characterize her, uh, this particular woman. Bold speech, bold approach, bold attitude, bold attire, brazen speech and manner. And it's a characterization, a caricature, if you will, of temptation as it comes out to meet us. Think about the world. Is the world humble and meek and quiet and how the world presents its, itself? It's lies, it's versions of truth. No, the, 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 the world is bold. The world is defiant in speech and manner. The world is loud and brash and as persuasive as the adulteress making their own claims. Falsehoods and lies. That's what we have in view here. This particular woman is like the world. The world's not quiet about what it's telling you to do, or what you should be participating in. Neither is this woman. She's a married woman. She's dressed, though, like what? A prostitute. She's immodest. She's wily of heart, the Scripture. Wily means cunning here. Cunning of heart. All of, all of the way she is is meant to deceive and entice to draw this young man in. And this... The son here must hide wisdom in his heart because he's going to meet at some point a woman like this and he will not stand a chance if he abandons with wisdom. He won't stand a chance. None of us will. Verse 11, she's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. She's unruly. She's restless. No roots at home. No roots in her family. Little care for her family. Completely opposite of when we'll get to study the Proverbs 31 woman. Completely opposite to the peaceful woman that wisdom values highly. Let's go to the New Testament here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Here's Peter's uh, instructions and commands to God's people. Specifically here writing to wives. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. How? Well, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is what? Very precious. Isn't that beautiful? 
What a contrast to the forbidden woman. Loud, brash, restless, immodest, unruly, cunning. The godly woman here, the godly wife, what? Pure of conduct, respectful, honors her husband, modest in her attire, prioritizing internal beauty, a gentle and quiet spirit which God highly values. What a difference. What a difference. Ladies, let me encourage you to not buy into the rival words of the world when it comes to how a woman should be, how a wife should act and comport herself, how a woman should conduct herself in the world, especially our world who diminishes femininity or has distorted it to such a great degree, especially when it comes to this aspect of modesty. Relax, I'm not going to tell you how to dress. But next week, we do need long skirts only. <laughs> no, listen, that's not the point. Because here's the world. Wear whatever you want. It's your body. If you want to flaunt it, if you want to show it off, it's up to you. No one can tell you how to dress. And it doesn't matter if men lust after you because of how you dress. That's their problem. It's not your problem. Right? It's what we're told. It's what advertisement tells us. Do whatever you want. Dress however you want. But that's not God's wisdom, is it? it? Peter's not saying women should look ugly and not do anything with their hair or not wear any jewelry. That's not what he's saying here. But the woman who prioritizes this external stuff with the attitude that she's going to do whatever she wants and not be in subjection to her husband, well, that's not the godly woman in view here. And look at those character qualities, the quietness, the gentleness. Does that mean a woman can't? You know, be joyful and exuberant? No. Do not misunderstand God's word when it comes to this. Right? Again, being modest in your dress doesn't diminish your God-given glory and sexuality and beauty. Not at all. Being modest, rather, is a sign that you honor the importance of glorifying God with your body first and foremost. That you don't separate your, the, the spirit from the body. That, that you are a unified being that needs to glorify God with all of you. And that's important. Again, it's completely distorted in our world. So femininity, you either have the extreme, one extreme is sluttiness, right? Where, why do they even bother? (laughs) Okay? What's the other extreme? The flattening of God's design, where women are told to dress like men. Don't look at feminine at all. Okay, do whatever you want to do. Dress like a man. Mike, be a man. Well, you don't want to be a man. Do you? No, if you're a woman, you do not want to be a man. God help you, right? True femininity is a gift from God. Women, you have been given such a beauty, such a unique strength and, and grace and dignity that men do not have. Why would you trade that away? It's it's insanity. Please don't fall for the cheap counterfeit of femininity in the world today. Or that a woman should not be feminine. How crazy is that? God made you uniquely as a woman. That's to be celebrated. That is to be adorned in a way that honors and glorifies God. Verse 12 this forbidden woman is everywhere, in the street, in the market, every corner, lying in wait. Like, she's like omnipresent, right? It's kind of, wow, she's everywhere. But sin is everywhere, isn't it? There is temptation in every corner, at every turn, everywhere in, in the world here. But look at that. She's lying in wait. Look at that imagery. She's the huntress, right? Stalking her prey, right? Like a, like a tiger crouching in the tall grass, ready to pounce on, on the weak. Reminds me of what God told Cain in Genesis 4-7 when he told him, sin is crouching at your door. That's what she's doing. She's crouching at the door. She was waiting for him, this fool walking by, right, going in her direction. It says then she seizes him and kisses him. That's pretty brazen. That's pretty brazen. But it's not romantic love, is it? This is pure lust, right? This is lust. This woman is using what God gave her, And the promise of lovemaking to manipulate this foolish young man. 
And that's what women do. Not godly women. There's women who use their sexuality and their beauty to manipulate, to coerce. And you know why they can do that? Because men can be kind of dumb when it comes to this stuff. We're turned on visually. Okay? It's very difficult for a man to say he's not tempted by a scantily clad woman. I mean, Solomon's painting this picture plain and simple and easy for this young man to get the point. He knows what he's going to face. He knows the temptation here. Men get dumb when women flirt with them and stroke their egos and tell them the things that they want to hear. Women are master manipulators. You are. You know it. I ain't telling you something you don't know. I'm not saying you ladies are. There's so many. These are godly women here. But you know how it is. Isn't that what the Lord told Eve? Your desire will be for your husband. That desire meant to lord over him. How does she lord over? Well, she's not stronger physically. I don't care what the world says. You can't put a man in woman's sport and say he's going to be just like the women. No, he's going to to dominate. It's not the physical. How is she going to dominate? How is she going to coerce him and manipulate him? She's going to strut her stuff. She's going to use her feminine wiles to twist and manipulate to get her way, right? And here she sees him. Like, look how, look at the aggressiveness of the behavior here, right? That's not a meek and quiet and gentle spirit. This is full out, right? Blatant right here. So Solomon knows how hard this is going to be for his son. Now, in 14 through 20, what we have here are, are now the woman speaks here, the forbidden woman. Seven lines from the adulteress dripping with deceit and false promises that veil her intentions, right? She is, she's drawing him in through her manipulation and her wiles here. And that's what sin does, right? Promises, 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 but they're temporary, fleeting, uh, um, momentary pleasures that eventually lead to pain, shame, or misery. Verse 14, she says, I had to offer sacrifices. I don't want to get too in the weeds with this, but she's now presenting herself as some type of religious devotee at the moment, you know? She, she's... She's covering her lust with religious motivations, and scholars are kind of mixed on maybe what this means here. But, but think about, and I'll just use this illustration, you know, thinking about the world's false ideologies. How does the world present sometimes to us things that we need to be doing or else, right? And there's a number of those. They could be social issues, social causes. I think of climate change. This whole, this whole thing of, of climate stuff, that's a religion, it's, it's, it's couched in the language of religion. Why? Because it's meant to draw us in because we have this need to know that there is something transcendent, something beyond us, something greater, something bigger. So when, when that kind of stuff is put in that language, right, it draws us. And maybe, again, this is talking to Israel. These, these are people who followed the Lord. So for, by her saying, hey, look, man, I, I went and offered my sacrifices, right? I'm doing my religious devotion and kind of drawing him in and he's thinking well okay this this might be a good gal (laughs) you know this might be this might be the one no she's not right yeah he's a dimwit no question about it now dimwit can be female also all right all right so don't you know, just think it's just guys, right? All right, so verse 15, so so now I have come to meet you, this is her speaking, to seek you eagerly and I found you. Listen to that. Was she really seeking him? out was she really looking for him specifically no no he's just a dumb prey that walked by at that moment that was getting in going on her way and didn't know what danger he was coming upon here right sin always finds the gullible the one who lacks wisdom right so here she makes him feel special like he's the one uh, that she was always wanting but he's too dumb to get it Verse 16 and 17, she tells him of all the special preparations she has made in anticipation of their night of lovemaking, right? So she's detailing these things that play into the sensual fantasy that this gullible dimwit had imagined here. She's got a soft, comfortable bed, 1,500 thread count Egyptian linens, right? This, This 
All of the essential oils are going, right? Aromatic aphrodisiacs from the diffuser, right? Wafting through the bedchamber, right? All of the finest things to indulge his sexual and fleshly fantasy. That's what sin does. Sin entices us by telling us we deserve these things. We can have these things, right? We can indulge ourselves in the fleshly pursuits. We're entitled to them. Rival world, words from, the, from sin in the world. Verse 18, come, let us take our fill of love till morning. I have a joke about that, but I won't tell it, right? A- after painting the scene for him, what does she do? She invites him in to now engage in what he's been fantasizing about, the sinful act. Again, she calls it love, but it's, it's not love. It's adultery. It's lust. His love should be for his own wife. Right? That's, that's the admonition we saw earlier, that he's to delight right, in, in the wife of his youth. And she is to be faithful to her own husband, right, who's off doing business, who's working hard and financing her lavish lifestyle, and here she is cheating on him. Verse 19 and 20, here's the final piece that's laid out, the final piece of the trap of sin, the promise of no consequences. Look what she tells him. My husband's not around. In the Hebrew, it's, not, it's, it's, it's actually very disrespectful. She doesn't say my husband. She says the man. She's not even referring to him as her husband. The man is not at home. The man is not around. The man went on a business trip. He's gone for a long time. I don't expect him back for a while. What does that mean? We have the place all to ourselves. We can take our time no one will know, and you don't have to worry about him coming home and punishing you. She says all of that, that they can get away with their sin because the husband is gone. No, she's not trying to convince him that the adultery is immoral and sinful. She's just letting him know we can get away with it. We don't have to worry about it. But she's not planning to leave her husband. Like, again, this isn't romance. This isn't love. She's waiting for her husband to come home. She's removing here the final barrier to the temptation. And that is the fear of exposure, the fear of being found out. See, I think most of us fall into sin of one sort or another, especially when we feel like no one will know. No one's going to find out. No one's watching me. I'm doing this when no one's around. I'm doing it in secret. I'm keeping it from my wife. I'm keeping it from other people. My boss doesn't know. My children don't know. Because we don't think we'll be found out. And I suspect most people, if they knew that there would never be a consequence of being exposed or found out, would continue to plunge headlong into their sin and folly. That's the promise of sin. No consequences. What was the tipping point in the garden when the serpent came to tempt Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, to disobey God? What did he say to her? You will not die. Do it. I know God said to you, you'll die, but God's not being truthful with you. You won't die. There won't be a consequence to this. That's how sin lies to us. That's how temptation lies to us. No consequence. You won't be found out. Of course you will. Now, you may not be found out by someone here in this life, but you are never outside of the penetrating gaze of our God. Nothing you do is in secret. It's never in secret before the Lord. And he'll judge it. He'll expose it now or then. look at the third section here verse 21 through 23 with much seductive speech she persuades him with her smooth talk she compels him all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare he does not know that it will cost him his life These rival words from from the honey lips of the seductive woman, her smooth talk, what does it do? It turns him aside, away from wisdom. 
Everything she told them presents a different world and life view to that of the fathers. She promises lovemaking that lasts all night. A no-strings-attached fling. That their indiscretion will never be discovered. That he didn't need to fear her husband finding out. And all of these things appealed to the gullible dimwit. And he was deceived and taken in by her smooth talk. But we know that, brothers and sisters. There's always a consequence to sin. It's inescapable. And the worst part here is that he doesn't even know that it'll cost him his life. What starts with a stroll, what's going down a street corner, what is making a move to, to her house and being taken in with a kiss, in the end, costs him his life. The wages of sin is what? It's death. But this guy doesn't even know it. He acts without reflection. He doesn't evaluate beforehand the consequences of his actions. He follows his fleshly impulses. And look at the phrase there. All at once, suddenly, he meets his demise. How tragic. Solomon compares him to an ox, a stag, a bird. Right? All these are animals or birds that ignorantly walk into traps, are ignorantly ensnared, or they're too dumb to know that they're even being led to the slaughter. Stupid animals cannot see the connection between a trap and death. They just, they just can't put that two and two together, right? They don't have the mental capacity for that. They don't have even the instincts for that as well. They don't know whether they're going to eat or they're going to die. An ox, right, has a ring in its nose. What for? That's how he's led around. Well, he could be led out to plow the fields or to graze. In the same way, he can be led to the slaughterhouse. That's the imagery in view here. Morally stupid people, dimwits, don't see the connection between their own sin and death. Every sin has consequences. Do not be deceived. Always remember, when you're tempted, sin's promises are empty. They're momentary. They're fleeting. They overpromise and underdeliver. And you'll always lose more than you gain. Oh, it's a terrible trade-off. Adam and Eve in the garden is one of the greatest examples of that. Hmm. I could eat the forbidden fruit, or I could have this beautiful, perfect garden paradise. It's crazy. It's crazy. Proverbs 24 through 27, chapter 7. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This is the only lesson like this. It's the last lesson of the father to the son that we're going to look at that's bookended with that same exhortation that it starts with. Listen to the father's words. It's the only way to avoid the rival words of the adulteress. Hide God's word in your heart. Guard it. Keep it safe. The son, if he doesn't listen to wisdom, he will follow woman folly, which we're going to look at here very soon. His heart will be turned aside to her ways. So there's the command. Do not stray. That implication is what? Stray is, seems like it's something accidental, isn't it? You might be driving and you're not paying good attention and you might stray off into the other lane, right? That's not a smart thing to do. We need to be alert. We need to listen. We need to be watchful at all times so we don't stray onto her path. Again, don't play with temptation. Don't use the cover of darkness or isolation to mess around with sin. Do not be idle because you won't escape sin's consequences. Proverbs 6, 27 and 28. In this last passage regarding the warnings to adultery, Solomon writes, Can a man carry fire next to his chest? And his clothes not be burned. Can one walk on hot coals. And his feet not be scorched. What's the answer? No. Of course not. Of course not. You will get burned. You will get burned. You cannot pick up a burning log. And hold it to your chest. And uh, think it's pretty cool. Now that person might be out there. right? I don't know them. 
I remember going to conferences, motivational conferences back in the day when I was in sales. And one of the things they do is they have you walk on hot coals. Like they would hype you up to walk on hot coals. I never saw someone walk across that really. You know their feet were burning, right? But they wanted to be cool. (laughs) They wanted to act like it didn't burn them. Of course it burns. You cannot get close to that fire without getting burned. You cannot play with temptation and, and remain unscathed. You cannot do that. When we're led by our desires and carnal impulses, seeking after momentary pleasure, we are moving away from wisdom, not towards it. And it's coming from our heart. It comes from within. James 1, 14 and 15, you know this. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. That dimwit, he desired the adulteress. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Death is the inevitable outcome of sin. Always. Verse 26 and 27, we see her way is the highway to hell. It's the path to Sheol. And she's defeated many a victim. Many a dimwit has met their doom at the house of the forbidden woman. Look what it says here. Her slain are a mighty throng. A lot of them, right? She's taken out mighty ones. She's taken out people far stronger than you or I. So it's not wise to think you're strong enough. You've got this. I can get as close to the line as possible and not get burned. No, you can't. None of us can. None of us can. I want us to close with this thought here of how Solomon paints the picture of of all manner of temptation, right, Uh, with this forbidden woman, the, the rival words of wisdom, and he paints it in the language of the sexual sin of adultery. And it's steeped in the language of the marriage covenant. She's a covenant breaker. That's what we're told about the adulteress. And she's abandoned the one she should be loving and being faithful to. Speaks of infidelity. On both sides, of course. The reality is we know that we are those covenant breakers. We are the unfaithful bride. We're also the unfaithful dimwit. Plunging headlong into sin. Because we lack sense and we lack Wisdom. We're like unfaithful Gomer, who was repeatedly unfaithful to her husband, Hosea. What do we know, though? God in his faithfulness, because God isn't a covenant breaker, is he? He doesn't break his covenant with his people. He's faithful. He's faithful. And he's purchased a bride for his son. He redeems for himself a bride. She was unfaithful, but, but she's made faithful by the faithfulness Of Jesus Christ. He takes a whore. And he makes her a bride. He takes what is filthy. And impure. And unclean. And makes her clean and holy. I love that imagery of John. In Revelation. When he. His eyes are open. And he gets this picture of the bride. He sees the bride. The triumphant bride. In the heavenly realm. How does he see her? He sees her. It's clothed in fine linen, white and pure. What a picture. What a picture of that once unfaithful bride and now how she is in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see in Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27. Again, the exhortation to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And how ought they to love their wives? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Christ, that's what Christ, the wisdom of God and the wisdom from God has done for us. He gave himself. He loved us to what? purchase us, to sanctify us, to perfect us, to to wash us over with the water of his word, to unite us with him forever. In how? In what? In splendor, in beauty, in holiness, without blemish. 
without blemish. The formerly unfaithful will be forever faithful. That's the promise. That's the promise. Keep that image before you when you're tempted to sin. That image that you are united with Christ. You are in Christ. Don't get hung up on the language of husband and wife. You, know, husband, you don't want a man saying, oh, I'm, I'm not a bride. You're a bride when it comes to Christ Jesus. He's the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. And we who are not faithful, we who, who are repeatedly unfaithful to the Lord, He redeems us, He ransoms us, He purchases us, He washes us, He cleanses us, He dresses us in white, and we stand before Him. This is our current positional status before Him. Clean, holy, white, and pure. Oh man, if we kept that before us, brothers and sisters, when temptation comes, we know the trade-off is horrific. It's worthless. Why would we trade that glory for momentary fleeting pleasure that cannot deliver what it promises? It's fleeting. It brings death. But Christ delivers us. He frees us from our unfaithfulness through His own faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, you're wedded to Him. You're wedded to Him and He is wedded to us in an unbreakable covenant that's not ratified by our faithfulness the promises of that covenant don't come to pass if you and i are faithful to the end we're not we cannot be but because he is faithful because he's faithful that's where we'll be before him in glory this way and he'll never divorce us And I pray that the glory and reality of these truths enable you to counter all of the rival words of this world. The rival words of of the flesh, the rival words of the devil, and any such thing. And I pray, beloved, above all, that you would keep Christ as the apple of your eye.